the big challenge is infectious diseases don't often bring in much money for the hospital. So they have less incentive to take on an expensive new treatment. This is in contrast to, say, cardiothoracic surgery or orthopedic surgery, which generates a lot of money for the hospital. And this has been a very, you know, I think a, a learning experience for me, uh, just looking at how much dollars and cents affect patient care. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Most of us know by now that we shouldn't take antibiotics for every little sniffle. If you don't know that... Hi friends, 23,000 people die of antibiotic-resistant infections every year in the United States alone. That's a problem. Many of us probably know a friend or a relative who has struggled with an antibiotic-resistant infection. But what is it like to be a doctor sitting on the other side? What is it like to face a patient trusting you to cure them when you know you might not be able to do it? And what do you do about that? Here to talk to us about the antibiotic-resistant infections and their future is Matt McCarthy, a physician, researcher, and ethics professor at Weill Cornell Medical School and New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's got a new book, Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic. Matt, thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, this book is a story of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance, but it is also the story of a clinical trial for a new drug. Why did you want to write a book based around a clinical trial? Oh, good question. One that my editors have often asked me. (laughs) Um, What happened was a few years ago, I got interested in the history of antibiotics. And I started looking into it and doing a lot of research, you know, beginning with the first commercially available antibiotic, penicillin, and then looking at, you know, some of the ones that came after that, including the sulfa drugs. And I realized that you know, there had been books about the history of antibiotics, and I didn't really want to redo that. Uh, So I started looking at what's happening right now with drug development. And one of the things I was struck by is that the narrative about superbugs right now is that we're running out of antibiotics, that there are these drug-resistant microbes for which there are no new treatments. And that's actually not true. Uh, There are lots of antibiotics that are getting approved by the FDA and that are hitting the market but that many of the hospitals, including the one that I work at, don't always use those new antibiotics because they're so expensive and they don't get added to the hospital's formulary. They don't uh, end up on the, the shelves in the stockroom because hospitals simply can't afford them. And I got really intrigued by um, the pharmacoeconomics of, of antibiotics. And so what I did was I found a drug um, called Dalbavancin, which costs several thousand dollars for a single dose. And I convinced the company to give me some of the drug for free and said, let's try it out. You know, this drug is way more expensive than the other antibiotics we're using by two or three orders of magnitude. Um, But could this benefit patients in a way that isn't uh, initially apparent? And so I used that as the lens to tell this entire story from what I hoped would be 360 degrees, you know, looking at it from the perspective of the drug makers, of the uh, physicians like me who are are trying to dream up a clinical trial, but then most importantly, uh, from the perspective of the patients who are coming into the emergency room every day with these drug-resistant infections um, and trying to figure out how we're going to treat them uh, in a way uh, that is um, both effective and efficient. And we will get back to the cost issue because I, I have a lot of questions around that one. But I wanted to talk about history because I love history. Uh, our listeners know antibiotic resistance is a huge issue. And you talk about a lot of bits of antibiotic history that I admit I did not actually know. You know, we think about antibiotics going back to penicillin. But in fact, we've been using them since before that entirely by accident. <laughs> I yeah, was wondering that... if you could give us that little little bit of deep history. Well, isn't that incredible that, um, you know, I, st- I started from the beginning as far back as I could go in recorded history of, of humans. And one of the things that I was able to discover is that there were antibiotics that were found in the skeletal remains of mummies in Africa, and that something called tetracycline, you know, a type of antibiotic we would use today, is actually intercalated into the bones of these skeletal remains. And then if you look, you know, a few thousand years later, we see that in the red soils of Jordan, that that the people in those communities found that there were healing properties in the dirt. 
And we, we can come back to that idea later. But the idea that, um, that civilizations can find certain things in the environment that have healing properties and consume them and then pass that down to future generations to say, you know, we, they may not recognize what the mechanism is, but they clearly see that that, you know, the bush over there that's got the, the green leafy, um, um, plant matter, somehow that's protecting them from infection. And they learn to both consume that and to tell their, um, their children to do it and how these kind of, you know, um, things get passed down through generations for thousands and thousands of years. I, I thought was just extraordinary. And to see how it goes from that to something like penicillin, where it becomes, you know, commercially available and how, um, when big pharma gets involved, how that changes things. But, but yeah, that the idea of the historical sweep of that is to me, um, remarkable. And, and what I really enjoyed writing about is that many people are familiar with the discovery of penicillin, but they don't really know what happens after that. And it became commercially available in the mid 1940s. And that ushered in what we call the golden era of drug development, the 1950s. And that was a period where there were incredible advances in the production of antibiotics. And it seemed like a new life-saving drug was hitting the market every couple of months and life expectancy blossomed. And then something happened in the 1960s. A number of prominent scientists, including Nobel laureates, came out and said, you know, we got this infectious disease issue kicked. It's time to start focusing on other conditions like heart disease and cancer. And it was this shift that the pharmaceutical industry had to those other conditions that called, caused this tremendous problem, which was that they stopped focusing on antibiotics. And that happened right when this, these bacteria and fungi started mutating and starting developing into superbugs as we had essentially turned our back on them to focus on other conditions. And so that was sort of the setup for my book and how we're looking to play catch up and, and create more drugs now. I do also want to point out that you mentioned in your book that the source of the tetracycline in the ancient bones was actually the beer, which I feel <laughs> is deeply important to myself and our listeners. I'm just going to yes. throw that out there. <laughs> yes. If you ever find yourself, uh, you know, at a bar, are maybe when you shouldn't be. Just remember that you could be doing yourself some good, that the yeast that was made to produce that IPA may have some healing properties you don't even know about. Save a life, drink a beer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, I did also want to talk, you know, your book does talk about penicillin a great deal, um, but I was really interested in another of the very early antibiotics, uh, sulfanilamide. Uh, people know about Fleming, they know about penicillin, but I had never heard of domac and sulfanilamide. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because sulfanilamide was another blockbuster drug in its day. Absolutely. You know, the penicillin gets all the glory, but then, um, you know, what was happening in Germany was extraordinary. In the uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, there was this big chemical plant, IG Farben, and they were doing, they were known for making dyes, um, commercial dyes. And somebody had this great idea, which was, what if we uh, used a dye to potentially as an antibiotic? The idea that this chemical could attach to a bacterium and destroy it. And so what they had the ca capability of doing was testing thousands of dyes against all different types of pathogens. And this guy, Gerhard Domach, uh, was able to identify uh, a, a dye that could kill streptococcus, the thing that causes strep throat. And what he was recognized was that if he released this information, that people all over the world would start to copy him and could easily make this this antibiotic essentially in their basement. And so what I, I write about is this race to patent this material and to create intellectual property that is an issue that we now are still dealing with that today. Uh, and how important it is for uh, the protection of intellectual property, but also the dissemination of information. And one of the things we see pharmaceutical companies doing now is coming up with all of these creative ways to extend their patent lives. You know, I, I write about the company Allergan. Uh, they tried to move one of their patents to a uh, Indian tribe. And they told the tribe that if you invoke tribal sovereign immunity, um, you can actually fend off competition from um, generics, and they could potentially split the profits 
Uh, and that's kind of an underhanded way of skirting the uh, intellectual property laws and patent laws. But those are the kind of things that we're doing now. And it's interesting to see how this all goes back to this, this uh, chemical plant in Germany in the 1930s and trying to figure out how do you protect uh, the, the information that's associated with antibiotics. And you mentioned that, you know, for example, Allergan, which, by the way, if anybody's heard of Allergan, it's because they make Botox. Those <laughs> guys. Right. Um, Allergan, you know, has tried to work with um, a Native American tribe to try and preserve their patents. There's a lot of, as highlighted in your book, shady, underhanded ethical stuff going on. Um, and in particular with sulfanilamide, I was horrified because sulfanilamide ends up having a lot to do with Nazis. Can you talk oh, about yeah. the Nazis? Yeah, absolutely. So this guy, uh, Domak, who, who discovers the drug and, you know, essentially it's a, something that would rival penicillin in terms of how valuable it is to humanity. You know, he's doing his research, uh, under, uh, Nazi Germany. And, you know, so, so much of the research that I did for this book was reading, you know, things like the rise and fall of the Third Reich or reading about uh, what it was like in the 1930s to try to be a, a, a scientist and a physician. You know, one of the things I note is that the professional organization that had the highest percentage of Nazi members was actually the medical profession. And that as much as we like to think of, you know, I'm a, I was seeing patients this morning, I'm a physician. Um, it abhorred me to find out what the, the truth was there. And and for Domak, he uh, was not a Nazi, and he refused to return the, the Heil Hitler salute, um, but that made life very difficult for him. Uh, you know, the Nazis had him thrown in jail. He wasn't able to accept his Nobel Prize. He um, was really, life was made very difficult for him because he had such staunch principles. And I thought that was a really interesting and underappreciated aspect of the history of antibiotics that, you know, sometimes it's serendipity, you know, uh, Alexander Fleming just kind of stumbled upon penicillin, but sometimes it's actually a meticulous work that by somebody who's got principles and um, who ends up standing up for something and then having the fruits of his labor protect and heal millions of people worldwide. And, and I thought that was a story that kind of got glossed over in my my um, medical history books. And so I wanted to make sure that that was featured prominently in Superbugs. Uh, most of your book, of course, actually is not about history. It's about the modern era. So let's fast forward another, like, what, 80 years now? <laughs> you are uh, a teacher of medical ethics. You are a clinician. You are a researcher. How did your own interest in antibiotic-resistant infections kind of come up? Yeah, it was one of those things that I just kept seeing in the hospital. Um, I was, uh, after graduating from Harvard Med School, I went to Columbia Presbyterian to do my medicine residency. And one of the things that I was struck by uh, was a patient who I became very close with, who was waiting for a heart transplant. And he actually became the focus of a, another book that I wrote called The Real Doctor Will See You Shortly. And everyone was focused on trying to get this guy a new organ, this new heart. And what was actually holding him up was he kept getting infections. Uh, he had one infection after another. And when you have those infections, they can't do the operation. And so I became fascinated by these hospital-acquired infections and by what I saw was this dwindling arsenal of drugs to treat him. And so when I finished my medical residency training, I went to Weill Cornell on the other side of Manhattan to subspecialize in infectious diseases. And it was there that I met uh, a quirky guy uh, by the name of Tom Walsh, who has become my mentor. And he's the world expert in fungal infections. And I spent, really, I've spent the past decade um, learning from him how to work with the pharmaceutical companies, but also with scientists and chemists who are discovering new drugs um, to figure out how do we bring these life-saving discoveries to patients. And that was something that I can tell you 20 years ago, I had no idea what I was going to be when I grow up. And I certainly did not expect it to be uh, someone who was focusing on, on infections um, and the, the antibiotics that could be discovered to cure them. And you know, most of this book is centered around kind of the, the development of new antibiotics. And in particular, it's based around a clinical trial that you ran specifically. Um, and 
I wanted to know if we could talk a little bit about that clinical trial in depth. First of all, you know, people, I've actually been in several clinical trials. Uh, People kind of know that drugs have to have clinical trials before they get approved. How do you start a clinical trial? Like, how does that begin? Doing a trial is one of the most rewarding and one of the most nerve-wracking things you can ever do uh, as a clinician scientist. Um, The way this one worked is that... uh, after meeting with the company who says, sure, we'll give you some of our drug to run a trial, you have to design a protocol. And that can take months. Um, you have to write out exactly what you would t- intend to do, what could go wrong, what you hope to learn, what are the side effects that could happen, All basically considering this from uh, every angle possible. And then you submit that protocol to what's called an institutional review board or an IRB. And perhaps we can return back to that. But the IRB is essentially a group which looks at your study objectively and decides if it is an ethically permissible study. It it prevents a guy like me from, let's say, watching Dr. Oz on TV hawking some new potion and coming into the hospital and saying, I want to test this this crazy potion. if it's dangerous for patients, it's a mechanism to prevent physicians from undergoing, you know, proposing a trial that is without merit. So the back and forth with an IRB can last months to years, frankly. And in my book, the, the IRB became an unexpected nemesis because I kept writing protocols and editing them and changing them up to meet the, the specifications. And they kept coming up with new reasons why the trial was not um, appropriate. And by the end of the book, I come to understand where they're coming from. But in the moment, it's tremendously frustrating. And once you get that approval, you can then move forward with the study. And my study was looking at this very expensive new antibiotic called Dalbavancin. And what's interesting about it is it's approved for skin in, for FDA approved for skin infections. And you give one dose and the drug stays in your system for up to essentially two weeks. So while it's really expensive, the extraordinary property of it is that you don't have to stay in the hospital to get treated. Uh, whereas for a lot of patients, they get admitted to the hospital for three or four days to get an intravenous antibiotic called vancomycin. That drug only costs $40 a dose. So our hospital was reluctant to spend a 100 times that on a new treatment. And so my study was to look at, could this new drug improve care get people out of the hospital more quickly and help us to run more efficiently um, while improving outcomes. And so that was a lot to take on. And what I thought was really interesting was the process of uh, broaching this with my colleagues and saying, hey, what do you think of this new drug? Should we use it? And they were very comfortable with the idea that it worked, but they were less comfortable with the idea of discharging patients quickly. You know, my, my colleagues like to watch patients actually get better. And it felt like a bit of a high wire act to give people an experimental new drug and then usher them out of the door. And so what the book is really about are those type of, you know, human experiences and the risk benefit calculations. And what is it like to experiment on another human being? Uh, One of my favorite moments in the book was when I was um, going through the consent form with a patient who ultimately was the first person to ever receive this drug at my hospital And he was a Fortune 500 lawyer, and he ended up putting the um, consent form down in his waist uh, at at his lap, and he kind of waved it off. And he said, look, Dr. McCarthy, I only have one question for you. Would you give this drug to your own mother? And that kind of took me aback because I had thought about this trial from 100 different angles, but I had not considered that very basic fundamental human question. And after kind of stammering for a few few seconds, I said, yeah, yeah yes, I think I, I would. Yes, I would. I definitely, you know, and it, I had to become more confident in the moment. And then he said, OK, well, that's good enough for me. Uh, and I love those little moments of humanity where we're just talking to each other as people. And that's that was the, you know, essentially the this patient was able to feel comfortable with this study because he knew the IRB had approved it. And so it's a mechanism for protecting patients uh, that is ultimately really, really important. And and I'm happy that the IRB is something that we now have in contrast to 75 years ago, where 
physicians were left to police themselves. And we, we very clearly know they cannot do that. And you mentioned that the drug company actually came to you with this drug. Does that happen a lot? Is that a like, is that usually what happens? Does a drug company say, hey, we have this drug, test it for us? You know, it, it didn't always happen like that, but it's happening a lot more now uh, with me and with antibiotics. I have a lot of companies that now come to me and say, hey, we have this new, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was one approved a couple of weeks ago called Cefiteracol. It's a great new antibiotic. Our hospital has no plans to use it. So the company would come to me and say, hey, could we run a study that would look at Cefiteracol for the treatment of various infections? Or um, another example would be an antibiotic called aravacycline. You know, there are these drugs that are getting, hitting the market, and it's unclear exactly how they can best be used. And so I sort of serve as a, um, a go-between where I try to uh, link up uh, academia and industry so that we can figure out where these drugs make sense to be used. Um, I don't know how much that was done in the past, but it's becoming very, very important now because companies spend so much money to get their drug approved, you know, to go from the test tube to uh, the hospital usually costs at least a billion dollars in 10 years of study. And so these companies are charging a lot more for their drugs. And we're, we're seeing that it's not always obvious what the market is for it. So I try to sort of figure that out. That does seem to kind of raise some interesting issues. As you mentioned, um, Dalba, the drug that you were testing in this in this book, costs thousands of dollars. And of course, right. in the case of the clinical trial, people did not pay for it. They got it for free. Um, but do you do you think about that when you go to apply drugs in the clinic and test new drugs? Do you think about how much that drug is eventually going to cost? And how does that factor into whether you decide to do a clinical trial? Yes, it absolutely does. You know, I have worked with pharmaceutical companies where the first piece of advice I give them is you have to drop the price of your drug. And then they say, thank you, Dr. McCarthy, for that feedback. That is something we're not planning to do. Do you have any other comments for us? And it's a very difficult thing uh, because, there, you know, there's a London School of Economics study which says that when a company invests in a new antibiotic, they typically lose $50 million. So they're trying to recoup some of their investment. And I think they often try to do it on the front end by charging steep prices for their drugs. And it's unclear if that is actually an appropriate or effective mechanism for recouping the investment. You know, they're all looking for a broad spectrum blockbuster drug. And the truth is, most of them are not going to be that. So once you recognize it's not going to be this uh, cure-all, what's the next step? And that's where I, I try to step in. And, you know, there's a lot of times I meet with a company and I look at the drug and I say, there's just no way for us to use this. We have six other alternatives. And I'll tell you, that comes up a lot with urinary tract infections. You know, there's this, um, I think, uh, misunderstanding that we are running out of antibiotics to treat gram-negative urinary tract infections, when in fact, we actually have lots of different treatments for them. And uh, the example that I point to is that in June of last year, there was a new antibiotic approved by the FDA called plazomycin. And it was made by a small company called Acaeogen. And there was terrific fanfare when this drug got approved for urinary tract infections. But anyone like me who follows this stuff closely recognized that that was going to be disaster for the company because we already have enough treatments for urinary tract infections. What we actually need are new treatments for bloodstream infections. And not surprisingly, that company, Acaeogen, uh, filed for bankruptcy nine months after their drug got approved by the FDA. So uh, I think another thing that's important to recognize is that when the FDA approves a drug, it's not just a blanket approval of you can use this drug for anything. They approve it for specific conditions like bone infection or for pneumonia or bloodstream infections. And those little decisions about what they're going to be approved for can, can make, uh, make or break a company. And, and that was something that I didn't really recognize until I started doing this type of work with drug development. And what I also know is that, as you mentioned, um, you tested this drug, Dalva, um, and now your formulary in your hospital is not going to carry it. So well, you might they, have these alternatives, but they don't, they aren't necessarily available to you. Well, well, that was what was interesting. They were not going to carry it. 
uh, and then we did our study and they did a follow-up vote and unanimously approved it. So we're now starting to use this drug based on the, the study that I did. And that's what the book is really about is that, you know, you may have data out there that says this new antibiotic works, but that doesn't mean a, a formulary committee is going to be swayed by the data. And so what I do are what's called real world studies where we say not just how this drug works, but here's how it works inside our hospital. And then we can make decisions uh, based on on that. And I think that is increasingly where we see um, some of these big decisions being made. So um, I think more to come on that. But but yeah, the formulary committee holds a very powerful place. And that's another thing that may dissuade companies from making new antibiotics. They'll say, We've got to go through all of this phase one and two and three testing to hope to get the drug approved by the FDA. And then even if it does get approved, there's no guarantee that a a formulary committee is going to approve it for their hospital. And and that's a very difficult situation for these companies. And that's why you see more and more of them simply dropping out of the uh, antibiotic development uh, game. And you you mentioned, you know, you sometimes ask companies to lower the cost of their drug. Um, but I mean, many of them don't, and those drugs get approved anyway. How do you, how do you kind of reconcile the fact that you might be testing a drug and then prescribing a drug that a patient may not be able to afford? In theory, insurance will cover it, but. Yeah, no, this, I mean, this is happening all the time. I, I compare this to, you know, in oncology. We have drugs that are approved to treat cancer that only extend life for a few weeks. And they cost tens of thousands of dollars. So um, whatever the scale is for antibiotics, this the the in the oncology world, it's even more extreme. You know, there are people who will take a drug that costs $100,000 to give them three extra weeks of life. So uh, this is a problem throughout medicine. Uh, and it's certainly highlighted in, in infectious diseases where we have these uh, price discrepancies. The big challenge is infectious diseases don't often bring in much money for the hospital. So they have less incentive to take on an expensive new treatment. This is in contrast to, say, cardiothoracic surgery or orthopedic surgery, which generates a lot of money for the hospital. And this has been a very, you know, I think a a learning experience for me, uh, just looking at how much dollars and cents affect patient care. Uh, and, you know, it's what I'm going to, it's what I spend my career working on, which are called pharmacoeconomic studies to look at, you know, we have all of these fabulous new treatments that are coming out for everything from heart disease to hip surgery. What are the ones that we actually should use and how should we use them? And I also wanted to kind of get a little, a little more in depth on this, this particular clinical trial that you were looking at. Um, I wanted to talk about DALBA. What what does DALBA, how does it work that makes it different from antibiotics currently on the market? Yeah, the big, the big unique factor is that it has uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that are different than other drugs. Basically, whenever you put a, an antibiotic or any other medication into a, a human, uh, it starts getting broken down by the liver. It can be excreted by the kidneys. Um, but for whatever reason, this drug hangs around much, much longer. You don't have to be hooked up to an IV to be getting it every 12 hours. You don't have to take a pill every six hours. You just take one infusion and it stays in the system. And that is a unique property that makes it very appealing for the treatment of, of conditions that require long-term treatment. So typically right now we treat bone infections known as osteomyelitis for up to six weeks. And if you could replace that with a couple of injections, uh, that would really change patient care. You know, this happens for bloodstream infections, which we will treat sometimes for a month. If you could give somebody two injections instead, uh, two infusions, that's a that's a game changer. And so what we have to figure out is, is it actually safe to do that? And that's a very uh, delicate task, you know, and what I was so interested in is in the part I like writing about or what's it like to go up to a patient and say, hey, do you want to be a part of a clinical trial? And them saying, who are you? <laughs> Why are you asking me? What do I have to do with this? And, you know, for this type of antibiotic, it's most effective against what we call gram-positive infections, which include uh, staph and strep, in- including the superbug MRSA. 
and for a variety of other types of infections. And so what I was largely doing with this study was looking at how the antibiotic works for people with MRSA skin infections. And that brings up a whole other issue with superbugs about, you know, why do some people get them and some don't? And who's contagious? How do you prevent yourself from contracting them? Uh, and a whole host of other questions which um, are only peripherally related to the actual antibiotic trial. Now, you mentioned that the thing that kind of makes Dalba impressive is that it stays circulating in the blood. It doesn't get filtered out um, or broken down, and it stays in for a very long time. Obviously, we did not find that out by just randomly injecting it into people. Presumably, this was tested in animals first. Uh, yes. So the, uh, the typically, when you have a, a new antibiotic discovered, let's say you find it uh, in a laboratory somewhere, you will test it in a you test it in a test tube, and then if it looks promising, you'll move to animal studies. Uh, this is often people do in two different types of animals, uh, mice, uh, and also we do a lot of work in rabbits. And then from there, you'll test in healthy human volunteers. Those are called phase one studies, and then you do phase two studies, which are people who actually have the type of infection you're studying. And then you do these big phase three pivotal studies where you go head to head against whatever the existing treatment is. And you see, is your new antibiotic better than what's out there on the market? And that whole process can take, as I said, 10 years. And so you mentioned that you test it in, in rabbits. And I know this is because rabbits have a more similar immune system to humans than mice do. Isn't that right? That's correct. For some conditions. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Hashtag not all, not all diseases. Hashtag not all rabbits. Um, <laughs> so I, I was actually wondering because, you know, we, in a previous conversation that, that we had, um, you mentioned that the animal trials actually did not make it into the book. And in fact, they're, they're not in it. There's no, <laughs> there's nothing in this book about the animal uh, studies. Why did it get left out? Yeah, there. That was a the part that ended up on the cutting room floor where I had written, gosh, I can't even remember how many dozens of pages about this huge section of the animal research that I do at my at my hospital. Uh, the short answer is that it is very controversial. There are people who are really upset by the idea of testing drugs on animals, and we actually keep our our animal facility in a nondescript building for that very reason. And I can tell you that uh, my wife is a clinician and she's a kidney transplant doctor. And when she read about my uh, animal study, she, she was really upset by it. And I was kind of taken aback at first because she's a researcher. She knows how this stuff is done. Um, but I, I was kind of conflicted about whether or not I wanted to have this detour in the book, which is really about a clinical trial in humans. And I initially wanted to have the background of the animal studies. But as I read it and reread it, I became concerned that uh, my graphic depiction of what's going on with the animal research may actually uh, be uncomfortable for some people. You know, we give animals chemotherapy to wipe out their immune system, and then we give them these superbug infections. And then we test antibiotics to see what um, what is effective. And, you know, this is crucial research because we cannot just simply discover a drug and start giving it to humans. We've got to know that it's safe. And and that was a part that um, I, I will say, I you know, after deep reflection, ultimately decided to leave it out of the book. I, I was kind of interested in that because, you know, you kept other kind of distasteful aspects of antibiotic history in the book, um, including, for example, um, the Tuskegee syphilis studies, which are, you know, a massive mark on U.S. medical history, um, as well as keeping in, for example, the completely unethical human studies that the Nazis did with sulfonilamide um, on concentration camp victims. Um, and you kept those in and took the animal studies out. Yep. Why? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's a good question. Why is it that you know, crimes against humans is something that's more palatable than crimes against animals or, you know, hurting animals or experimenting on animals. You know, what it really came down to was the people who I uh, sent the book to to read uh, early on, my, my early readers. And it was a consistent theme from the people who I 
sent it to that it was very difficult for them to read about the animals and that I wasn't really getting the feedback that I wanted about all of the other stuff in the book. And I felt like, you know, it was perhaps a limitation from the way I presented the work, that it was somehow distracting from the other issues. I never heard somebody uh, complain about the Tuskegee stuff. And maybe it's because some of these other things are more vaguely familiar to people, uh, that they feel like they've heard it before, and maybe they have not confronted animal research uh, in such a graphic manner before. Um, but I I was struck by the fact that, you know, I'd you know, sent an early draft of the book to people who are uniformly writing back with, with comments, current concerns and questions about the, the animal studies. And so that's what ultimately uh, left it out. Well, so I wanted to turn back to the clinical trial that you ended up running. It was a phase three. Is that it's, correct? It's actually a phase four. So a phase four. Well, yeah. So phase four pharmacoeconomic study. So basically after drugs get approved by the FDA, there's still studies that keep track of how, you know, post uh, approval to make sure that people aren't having problems, you know, because every once in a while, and I write about this, an antibiotic gets approved by the FDA and then people start dying from it. And that's a big problem. And so the FDA is wise enough to know that they need to get you know, data on drugs after they've been approved. And how did it go? It was a big success. Uh, the thing that we found was that this new antibiotic, Dalbavancin, can um, treat patients effectively and can get them out of the hospital more quickly. It essentially cut the, the time that they need to be in the hospital in half. And people were able to get back to work and get back to normal life more quickly. You know, we didn't say that it's better than the existing treatments, but we'll just, we were able to say it's as good as the existing treatments, um, and can shorten your time in the hospital. And, you know, my hospital is often bursting at the seams because we've just, we're so busy, so crowded and anything we can do to effectively and efficiently treat patients, I think will be a welcome addition. And so what I do now is, look for other drugs. You know, Dalbavancin is not alone in this category. There's another drug called Aritavancin and, you know, other similar drugs and trying to figure out where would those drugs fit for us and, and how can we bring these treatments to the patients who need them most. And I also wanted to ask, you mentioned that you had a bunch of kind of beta readers for this book. Um, and you also included a lot of work from fellow scientists and fellow doctors and patients. Um, how did you end up kind of checking this, the work in this book, the facts in this book over with your yeah. sources? Yeah, that's a really tricky thing. So the first thing I did was to hire a professional fact checker. Um, I have a, I used to write for Sports Illustrated and they have long had a, a cadre of, of fact checkers. And so I was able to get somebody who could just, you know, unbiased and go through the book and identify every fact and then check it. Um, and then I also was able to reach out to every scientist mentioned by name uh, and just confirm with them that what I'm discussing about their work is accurate. Uh, this is one of the most nerve wracking parts because scientists can be real tough, <laughs> especially if you're describing their work. And what I did was I just um, would send them what I had. And and that was a very useful uh, experience for me to just see if I was describing their work the way that they would describe it. Uh, and then I also would reach out to clinicians who were involved in the studies. And, um, you know, there were a lot of interested parties in this because I'm writing about pharmaceutical companies, writing about patients, writing about other doctors and scientists. And it was a very painstaking uh, effort to get through this. You know, I had uh, somebody who was challenging me, my copy editor challenged me quite a bit on my description of the rock band, the Eagles, <laughs> and that I had described one of the backup uh, guitarists or one of the guitarists as a reluctant lead singer. And we had a long a series of exchanges about whether or not that was indeed the case because he had seen them live in concert in the 1980s and didn't think the guy was reluctant. So, you know, I open myself up for a lot of feedback, but it's ultimately with the goal of having the strongest and tightest narrative possible. Um, you mentioned that you, you know, talk, sent, well, discussed portions of it with scientists and with clinicians. Did you, the patients were de-identified, but these are real patients. That's Did correct. you talk about this with them? 
Yes. So for many of them, what I would say is after they were enrolled in the trial, I would say, you know, I'm also writing a book about this. Um, would you be okay if I write about this experience or de-identifying you, changing, you know, uh, identifying details? And almost uniformly, they said yes. Um, if the patient said no, I didn't do it. Uh, but there were a couple of times, and I'll, you know, there's one example of a patient who is clearly not interested in in me or talking with me, who was very frustrated with her care, um, and I did not uh, get her permission for this, but I changed the details enough um, that I felt comfortable with describing it because I think it's important to show that not every doctor-patient relationship goes well, and it's important to be real about this stuff. and And I wanted to include some of the uh, less savory aspects of this. And, and that's something that I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to present uh, with, in a way that was uh, as fair to everyone involved as possible. I I admit that kind of surprises me because I, I kind of feel like, you know, presumably you'd encounter more than one person who had the doctor-patient relationship kind of go sour. Um, so I, I was wondering why maybe you didn't wait until you got permission from someone else. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you, I saw 18 patients this morning. I would say that at any one time, five or six of them are very frustrated with their care. So uh, I, it's not unusual at all to find people who, uh, you know, you come into my emergency room, you're going to wait, you could wait a very, very long time for a bed and people get frustrated and they're they're not in their best, their best place. And so uh, I wanted to just, you know, put out there what was really happening to me in real time. And some of it was wonderful and some of it was was less so. And it was just, um, you know, the experience of consenting people for a clinical trial was new to me. And just seeing what the human reactions were, uh, good and bad, was was fascinating to me and I, I hoped would make for interesting stuff for a reader. Well, what I'm saying is, you know, you, you didn't get her permission um, or this person before you wrote about kind of that sour doctor-patient relationship in your book, do you think it might have been better to like wait and have somebody who you got consent for, even though the relationship was sour? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a, a fair question. Um, I that's not the way that I've done this, and for this book or for the other book, and I you know I'm, I have a very uh, good relationship with another. A bunch of other physicians who are writers in the medical humanities, and we go back and forth about this a lot. You know, at conferences, somebody will say, you should only write about a patient if you have written permission. Uh, and then there are people who are who would say the exact opposite of that, that you don't have to have, you know, a journalist doesn't need permission to tell a story. And there's everything in between. Um, the nice part for me is that a number of the patients who are mentioned in this book um, have reached out to me and saying that they really appreciated uh, uh, being mentioned. And one of them actually came to one of my book readings this summer and, you know, asked to be identified publicly so that we could just talk about what that was like. Uh, and so in general, I think it was a really good experience. Um, but yeah, every once in a while, there are, are moments that come up where you're not really sure how best to describe it. And, you know, that woman who we're talking about in the book may actually not even be a woman. Uh, and that one of the things I wrestle with as a writer is how much do you de-identify somebody to protect them? Because you want to be writing about what's true, but you don't want to change it so drastically that it's, it's become some other story. And I also wanted to ask you, this is kind of a shift in gears, but then again, it isn't because it is, it is about, about you and an issue that you do wrestle with in this book. You do so much in this book. You see patients, you run a trial, you're writing books. <laughs> this is, in <laughs> yes. fact, your second book. Um, but you also mentioned something important in the book that I think probably deserves more coverage just in general, physician burnout. Yes. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, with all the stuff you're doing, do you suffer from physician burnout? <laughs> oh, yeah. And this is a this is a hot topic in my field. And I would say that what probably half of the people I work with experience this at some point, I have found that there is so much rejection in academic medicine. And for your listeners who are probably in other forms of academia, so much rejection that if you just kind of go through your day, you're going to be pummeled with negative feedback. So one of the compensatory mechanisms I had was I started putting a lot of irons in the fire. 
And I started doing a lot of stuff um, with the expectation that some of it wouldn't work out. Um, you know, I became editor in chief of a fungal journal and I'm running trials and some of the stuff you mentioned. And what became really tricky for me was when uh, things started to actually work out and I had to complete the things that I assumed weren't going to work. Um, but what it allowed me to do was to become incredibly engaged in what I was doing. So I don't feel any burnout right now. What I feel is this need to be focused all the time. And that's very exhausting. You know, in a prior life before I became a doctor, I was a, a baseball player and I was a, a relief pitcher. And I would often get brought into the game when it was, you know, bases loaded and nobody out or there'd be some very tense situation. And I had been goofing around in the bullpen all game, and I became very good at being able to flip a switch and to become incredibly focused for a period of time. And I find that my life now is kind of like that, where I bounce from one thing to the next and have to be very focused for the thing I'm working on. And then I have to flip the switch and go to something else and be very focused and then go to the next thing. And it all works for me as long as I can stay focused in the moment. If I ever find myself daydreaming or worrying about a different task when I'm, say, you know, seeing a patient or trying to write something, then it becomes very stressful for me. But as long as I can maintain focus, uh, I don't worry about burnout has not been an issue for me um, thus far. But, you know, I, I certainly appreciate when I see my colleagues going through it. You know, one of the big frustrations for us is the electronic medical record and how much we have to spend just typing away rather than seeing patients. And I think that that's a, a huge cause of, of stress right now among clinicians. The way you describe what you do actually reminds me a little bit of a quote. I think it was from Teddy Roosevelt, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me. But I believe the quote is something like, uh, black care never caught a man whose horse was fast enough. <laughs> okay, I got to look that one up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, something like that. I'm paraphrasing it and probably getting it wrong. <laughs> okay. But I, I was interested in this issue of physician burnout because, um, you know, a lot of what kind of brings people down in modern social media is the fact that you're looking in modern social media and like Instagram or something, and you're seeing this constant record of someone else's constant success and constant achievement. And in many ways, this book is kind of a tale of constant success. There are challenges and there are moments of frustration, but it all comes out great in the end for, for a lot of people. And do you, is there anything that you put into this writing to kind of help other doctors think about, you know, burnout and maybe not yeah. get discouraged? Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. When I first proposed this book, I went to my editors at Random House and I said, I'm going to write about this clinical trial I'm doing. And they ultimately said, it's too risky for us. What if this trial doesn't work out? How are you going to write a book that, you know, let's say this trial could be stopped halfway through if it turns out this drug is dangerous, or it could be that the drug doesn't help. Then what book do you have there? And they ultimately passed because they thought it was a too high of a risk. And so I went to a different editor at Random House, uh, at, at the publishing house Avery within Random House. And what they saw was that it didn't really matter how this trial turned out. It was going to be this interesting struggle to try to figure out how to use a new drug. And while I was doing it, um, I was very uh, stretched in different directions. I felt stressed at times trying to balance things. And there's a brief aside in the book about how I sometimes felt kind of overwhelmed being around people who were so much smarter than I was and who knew so much more than I did and how I kind of felt like it was that comparison to being in the band, the Eagles and being this random guy surrounded by geniuses. And what I found was that there wasn't a, there weren't a lot of people I could talk to about it, that, you know, the struggle that I was going through was one that I felt like I had to just take on myself. I think that was a mistake. I think that often what's best is to be able to rely on other people. And I spend a lot of time now with junior faculty uh, talking to them about strategizing their career. And one of the big struggles we have now is that physicians are asked to do so many things and to do them, uh, to do them well and to do them without pay, you know, teaching classes. We all love teaching uh, medical students, but it's one of those things that can be a, a thankless ask. And we're, 
constantly trying to figure out, you know, should I be a peer reviewer for a journal? Should I go give a presentation at a conference and be away from my kids? Um, all of that, I think, contributes to burnout. And it's certainly something that I don't see going away. I don't know that I have an answer for it other than to be fully engaged in your work. But that can be hard because as a medical student, maybe you don't know what you want to spend the rest of your life doing. Um, and so while I don't always have the answers to that, I, I do spend a lot of time with other people trying to look at things from the big picture, you know, the 30,000 foot view and saying, you know, 10 years from now, what, what do you want to be doing? And that's a, that's a hard question for anyone to answer. And finally, I know that you have to run really soon, um, but your book covers <laughs> so many things. It's medical ethics. It's the history of antibiotics. It's your own clinical trial. It's the nature of scientific collaboration. It's the personal stories of your patients. And it's all that in a very slim 250 something pages. <laughs> it's a lot. What, what do you most want people to kind of take away from your book? When I started working on this book, I often just have conversations with smart people who have no connection to medicine or science. And I was talking with one of my friends who's a novelist, and he said, wait a second, you mean a bacteria is different than a virus? And I said, yeah, it is. And I recognized that there is just this huge heterogeneity in how much people understand about superbugs and about antibiotics and about clinical trials, that I wanted to write a story that not only informed people, but it was something that would stick with people, that they would remember two years from now something about the book. And so I included a lot of different things, you know, as you point out, from the ethics to the science. And what I wanted to tell was a story that when somebody's the next time they're in the hospital or the next time they see an article about superbugs, that they'll remember my book and remember that it had something important to say about this, ultimately this human struggle that we're trying to, to face on this huge public health threat and that people are doing it from a whole lot of different ways. But it's something that we're, we're taking, you know, head on and we're going to eventually solve this problem. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being here and giving us your time. It's a really fascinating book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Matt McCarthy and his book, Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic, we've got links up at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, give us a review or two, why don't you? Tell us what you like, what you don't like, and hit us up with your own superbug experiences. You can tweet me at B-E-E Brookshire, and you can tweet at the show at Sci for the People. That's the number four, Sci for the People. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 